Hi, I'm Mary Worden, and this is Premier Health Now On Air, COVID-19 edition, a Premier Health podcast. This is the week of October 19th, 2020. So, when you were a kid, did you ever play the game Telephone? I'm guessing that most of you will immediately know what I'm talking about here, but if not, here are the rules. So you got a group of at least three friends, but usually more around ten, and everyone sat in a circle. Whoever went first whispered a word or phrase to the person next to them, and they could only do that once. Then the person who was first whispered to whispered the same thing they thought they heard to the person next to them, and it went on like that until it got to the very last person. The last person then revealed what message made it to them all the way down the line. And it was usually not what the first person shared. So when I was a little kid, it always seemed pretty funny that the last person would blurt out something that was such a stretch from what the first person started out whispering. When taking on this podcast, it became very important for me to stay on top of current trends and all things related to COVID-19. And I've come across some serious headlines, some contradicting thoughts, and so much more in my research. And that got me wondering if what we're all seeing in the news is kind of like what the last person in a game of telephone would share with their group. Has the story changed? Where did it start? To help clear things up, we're joined again by the always wonderful Dr. Cologne, Premier Health's System Vice President of Quality and Safety and Associate Chief Medical Officer of Miami Valley Hospital. Hello, Dr. Cologne. How are you? I'm doing okay. (laughs) I think, you know, I think um, everybody's learning to live with all the stressors that we've had dealing with COVID. Um, Everybody's adjusted. We've been dealing with this for the better part of this year already. Um, at the hospital level, operations have all had to adjust. Our daily lives have all had to adjust. Um, I think our physicians, nurses, and staff are tired, uh, just like most healthcare providers across the country. They've been dealing with something that takes a lot of emotion as well as physical strain, um, and you can't just run away from it when you leave work because you see it in your daily lives, you see it in TV, you talk about it with your friends. It's just something that we can't get away with uh, or away from. And that's very, very draining for everybody. And I think the fact that despite dealing with this for as long as we have, everybody keeps coming back um, and turning and taking care of patients it is a testament to the fortitude of the healthcare professionals that, that they're despite all this, still willing to take care of patients. Ah, so you never get a break from this. Is there anything that you've found to be helpful fighting the fatigue of being hit with the pandemic personally and professionally? Yeah, um, I think everybody has to find their their decompression. Um, and for some, that could be family. For some, um, family is an extra stressor right now because, uh, you know, we're, we're still uh, all living in our own individual bubbles. But I think everybody has to find some mechanism to decompress, um, something that brings them personal joy that is not related to illness, that is not related um, to healthcare. And um, it's challenging because for a lot of us, 
the the things that brought us that decompression and joy were social activities that we don't have the same ability to enjoy now. So many people are having to rediscover um, other hobbies, other interests, other more introspective ways to be able to combat that fatigue. And it and it's um, it's taken a toll on everyone. There is a lot of stress. It's not going away anytime soon. And that in and of itself is a very draining thought process. And then we see all of the political um, atmosphere that has become toxic at times on top of everything. Um, it, it just, it seems like it, it's very hard to escape that emotional stress. So it, it, it's very important that individually everybody finds something that brings them joy, something that they can retreat to, whatever that may be. And, and it's very different for everybody. Um, so I think everybody just has to be um, very insightful to try to discover what it is uh, that they have that can bring them that that enjoyment. Yep. This is a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic, and it had to happen on an election year, right? 2020 keeps, um, keeps bringing out new and innovative ways to test us. Uh, the thing that's becoming very evident is um, people overcome. They adapt. And uh, it may be slow for some. Uh, we don't all adapt at the same pace, but but we all uh, we all do because that's one of the things that the human nature will do. We'll find a way to to overcome and adapt. Dr. Clone, two new studies suggest that people with blood type O may have lower risk of COVID nineteen infection and severe illness. Does blood type O lower the risk for getting COVID nineteen? So the first thing that I am going to let everybody know is this does not mean that if you have blood type O, you can disregard any of these protective measures. This is observational. This is how science is created. We first look at a trend and then we end up diving more to try to understand it. So when they have looked at patients with different blood types, this is an observation. The next piece is understanding why that is. Is it really that blood type O is protective or is it that other blood types actually increase the risk for having severity? Are there other genetic uh, factors that are associated with blood types? So there are a lot of questions that are still out there about the why. And one of the things that we always like doing in medicine and in science is understanding why things occur. It isn't enough to just see the observation because that, that may not or should not change how we manage this disease. It really shouldn't because if it doesn't mean that if you're blood type O, you have zero risk of getting a complication. Not true. It doesn't mean that you have zero risk of getting the infection. That's not true. I think if we ended up with those extremes, then we could potentially change how we're doing our protective status. Um, right now, it does not. So it's very intriguing. It's something that actually we have been hearing about uh, for months now. Even early in the pandemic, there was some initial suggestion about uh, blood types actually conferring some potential risk for one, uh, for one blood type versus the other. But I think as we're gathering more data for more and more people, those trends are becoming much more apparent. The next phase, as I said, is understanding the why that is. And it is likely that it has to do with the virus to being able to enter 
the cells based on uh, different blood types. Some researchers say that the virus responsible for COVID-19 can remain infectious on surfaces for 28 days. I've heard a lot of varying opinions on this topic over the last six to seven months. What are your thoughts on this? So, um, again, very intriguing observation. In practical aspects, I don't think it changes a lot of what we do. One of the things that we have learned as this pandemic has gone on is that the surface transmission does not appear to be a major transmission uh, mode. It's not that it doesn't occur, but it doesn't seem to be the main way that this is spread, which is a bit different than initially we were thinking it was going to be a very large contributor to how this infection seems to be passed from one person to the other, to one other. The main mechanism of transmission, as you know, is the respiratory droplets going from one person to the other. So the fact that this lives in various surfaces for an extended period of time is something, again, that's been known for quite a while. I think it, if you adjusted atmospheric conditions, you can probably get a lot of various bacteria and viruses to live for longer and longer periods of times by adjusting that. In real life conditions, the lifespan is much shorter than that. But again, to combat that, that's why washing your hands is really so important. Um, that is why making sure that the surfaces are clean, particularly where there is a lot of turnover, is so very important. Quite frankly, the, the, I would be much more concerned about transmission in a short period of time. Meaning if I came to a surface that somebody with COVID would have been using just minutes before and they had dropped a lot of respiratory droplets because they coughed and sneezed in an unprotected manner on that surface. And then I came before washing my hands after touching, I touched the surface and then I touched my mucosal membranes. That would be more of a risk because I'm touching the droplets as they are still um, in suspension when they have a lot of virus contained within it. The thing that isn't yet very clear in any of those studies that have looked at the survivability of the virus is how many viral copies were actually present in any of those surfaces. Because one of the things that we have to realize is that there is an inoculum am amount that is going to be required for me to be able to pick up that virus and then after I come in contact with it, actually get it. Um, so there are a lot of factors that go into being able to transmit the infection. So it's not just the virus living in there, it's actually also the ability to transmit it to somebody else. So while the fact that we can adjust the atmospheric conditions to prolong the life is a very interesting study, I don't know that it has yet any practical effect on what we're doing for the virus. There's no additional precautions. I would not tell anybody that you have to do anything different when you buy frozen foods from the store um, or that you have to do anything different when handling um, boxes, mail, material, any of that. Again, just washing your hands and, and normal safe hand hygiene practices should really be sufficient. One of the things that happens often is the context is taken out because the fact is, you know, the study found that this can live for a lot longer without really applying a scientific mind into what does this mean for us, it is very easy for that to inadvertently draw conclusions one way versus the other. 
As we head into November, a lot of us will be visiting the polls. Even though by now everyone should know the proper precautions while going out in public settings, how can we all vote safely during COVID-19? So the first thing is, if you are ill, please do not go in person. Uh, that, that's something that, that's very important. This is why planning is so key. So don't wait until the last minute because if you're ill, it could preclude your ability to go there in person. Second, when you do go to the polls, wear your mask. Make sure that you are maintaining that social distance when you are there from other people. And it's going to be a bit of a challenge, but I've seen the voting lines already in some places. And part of the are so big is people are being good about keeping that distance. And we want to make sure that we continue to enforce that. If you see people around you who are ill, give them a little more room. Uh, I think it's it's very difficult for you to come up to a total stranger and tell them you shouldn't be here without knowing their circumstance. So I'm not going to expect that anybody is going to send somebody home. That's something that I think the poll workers should be able um, to work through. But it becomes a, a big challenge when you're telling somebody to leave a polling site. So that, that the safer way is if you're ill, please don't go. Um, and then the last piece of advice is making sure that you bring in some hand hygiene material, whether that's going to be uh, a small bottle of some hand sanitizer or you're going to use some of the hand sanitizer is there. It's an area that different people are going to be touching throughout the various days um, leading up to, to the election and the final day. Please make sure that you take care. Um, we talked about the short duration from the person before um, until you came up where they could drop some, um, some fresh droplets in there. They're supposed to be sanitizing those machines, but don't take a chance. Make sure that you're washing your hands before and after you're touching that, uh, that machine. Many parents of college students keep having the talk with their kids about COVID-19 protocol. While some kids are rolling the dice more than others now that they're back in class, what advice can you offer to parents who are doing their best to monitor their kids long distance? You know, I think it's, it's a lot of the same advice that we give when we're talking about other sensitive subjects like sex or drugs is be honest, be frank, explain the facts. These are people who are living independently. They are into adulthood. We need to be treating them like adults. We need to be explaining the why. The challenge isn't so much in that information. It's how it's received. It's how they view themselves. It's the fact that we have emphasized over and over that this disease affects more severely those people who are older. Therefore, if you're younger, we're saying, it's not going to affect me so much because I'm not in that age group. When in fact, there are countless examples of young people who have not only had severe illness, but have died. They need to understand that. And I think that that's a piece that parents have to emphasize. This is not just something that you can guarantee you're going to be okay with because most young adults are able to recover. The other piece is just because somebody does not have severe manifestations of COVID during the illness does not prevent them from having complications afterwards. And we're seeing more and more about just how COVID can affect people beyond those two weeks of illness. And in some cases, devastatingly so. So I think young adults need to understand that. And the last piece is we have to model the behavior. 
it is very hypocritical for a parent to tell their child, make sure that you're wearing the mask and don't go to social activities when we may not do that at home. They need to see it. If kids see their parents wearing a mask and they understand the importance that at home, they're driving home the point the kids are more likely to follow that advice. They're going to emulate the parents, whether the behavior is good or bad. So it's up to us to really be modeling that behavior and to reinforce it rather than deride it. I think the worst thing parents can do is go, oh, masks are stupid, you shouldn't use it. They're sending the wrong message to kids. They absolutely do work. They are a key way in how we're going to be able to manage this until we're able to get a different preventative strategy like vaccines or um, sufficient immunity, uh, which is still gonna be unfortunately not an immediate uh, development. And kids need to understand that. The same thing with the social distancing. You know, they've been looking forward to college. Um, they, they've been wanting this and now we're telling them you're away from home, but you can't partake. They need to understand why. And, and I think that that's something that parents of, of college age uh, children are, are, are having to battle. And unfortunately, not all the, the children are willing to listen the same way. Um, so it, it's going to be um, an ongoing challenge in that age group. And speaking of kids, but of a different age group, we have a big holiday coming up. What tips do you have as we approach Halloween? Yeah, avoid the big gathering. This is not the year to do it. I will tell you personally, we used to host the one in our neighborhood uh, every year. And this is a year that that as much as, as it broke a heart to do it, we really shouldn't. That's the safe answer is we're not having that gathering, even in a smaller scale. It, it just, it's not a good idea. When you're taking kids out trick-or-treating, keep that group small. Uh, in neighborhoods, you, know, you may see a dozen kids that were going house to house. That's too many kids. We really want to be able to reduce that, uh, that as much as possible. And then know your own risk. If you are not comfortable handing out candy, don't. I think this is a year that people are going to understand um, that, that that's, that's a, a, a safer alternative. Um, and people have to recognize that everybody has a different threshold for that. The same thing if you don't feel comfortable trick-or-treating, don't. Um, I think everybody has to be able to recognize that risk. And for more tips on how to have a safe Halloween this year, check out episode four with Dr. Bell Castro. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Dr. Colon is going to talk to us about a new clinical trial happening at Miami Valley Hospital and give us an update on the state of vaccines. We'll be right back. At Premier Health, our care lives where you are with telehealth options available 24-7 and online scheduling for doctor visits. It lives close to home with primary and specialty care providers and convenient urgent care locations in ours. And it lives in our emergency rooms with access to the region's most experienced level one trauma center. Our care lives in safe and easy access to the care you need the way you want it. Find the care that's right for you at ChoosePremierCare.com. Premier Health. We're back. Miami Valley Hospital is actively enrolling patients in a clinical trial for Regeneron. What can you share with us about this? Yeah, this is actually very exciting. Um, and the reason this is exciting is because we now are looking at an ambulatory treatment arm. So up until now, the majority of the treatments for COVID have really focused on patients in the hospital. 
um, the sicker uh, individuals. We're now looking at the healthier patients soon after diagnosis. And this treatment is really aimed at decreasing that progression of disease and shortening the duration of illness. If we can do that, we may be able to keep people out of the hospital. And if we can keep people out of the hospital, we may be able to reduce mortality associated with it. So that's why this is such an exciting study is because it has the potential to be an ambulatory study or I'm sorry, an ambulatory treatment for people who are out in the community. And we know that 85% of the patients who have COVID are gonna be the mild to moderate symptoms. Um, so they're not going to necessarily progress. We have the bulk of patients that are out in the community. This is a study that's geared towards that population and hopefully reducing the burden of disease by shortening the duration of the illness as well. That's very exciting. How would someone qualify to be a part of that study? Yeah, so you have to be over the age of 18. You have to have a diagnosis um, with a positive test. I believe it's within the past three days to be able to actually be enrolled. Um, and you have to not be hospitalized or have not required a hospitalization recently uh, for COVID-19. While most people are told they will recover from mild coronavirus infections within two weeks and from more serious disease within three, I've seen multiple reports saying many people could live with what I'm hearing is called ongoing COVID. Is this something you're seeing in the Miami Valley? And can you explain to us what that means? Yeah, so so the first thing is I don't like the term ongoing COVID. And the reason I don't is because it makes it sound like they're still infectious and they really are not. Um, so this is more of, I, I prefer the term post-COVID syndrome. And, and that is really what happens after COVID. And they have this long duration of fatigue, muscle aches, cough, shortness of breath. That varies significantly. Yep, we've seen patients who have it. Um, the majority of the patients who have the mild to moderate disease, really in about three to four weeks to their baseline. It's the more severe patients who end up having the prolonged symptoms. And a lot of those symptoms are actually the result of damage that occurred as a result of the severe illness. If they have COVID that becomes severe enough to require intubation or if they develop COVID pneumonia or ARDS where their lungs are inflamed, those symptoms are going to potentially take years to completely go away. And if we look at coronaviruses uh, like, like the previous SARS and MERS, some of those patients actually ended up having three years worth of pulmonary changes before they completely went away. Unfortunately, there are some who have lifelong damage when they get fibrosis. And we've had patients who have required lung transplantation because the damage is irreversible. There are those who, who unfortunately succumb to the illness and die because of overwhelming disease. There is a huge spectrum of complications that persist, not from just the COVID itself, but of the damage COVID does to the body. And that's why we just don't know yet the impact of the illness long-term. We've been, we've been with this for less than a year. We don't know how long those symptoms are going to last for some people. The majority of individuals, as I said, it's only going to be a matter of a few weeks and they're going to be back to normal. But there are going to be some that are going to be on the other extreme, and we just don't know how long that is yet. Dr. Cologne, could you review the current therapeutics for people who have COVID-19? 
Yeah, so, so the therapeutics that we have available to patients in the hospital right now um, targeted for COVID are remdesivir, which is the antiviral therapy. And those are for patients who are usually severe enough to require oxygen therapy and to have some inflammation. Um, we have um, a therapeutic option of using dexamethasone, which is the corticosteroid. And that's for patients, again, who require oxygen therapy beyond two liters. Um, and we also have a therapeutic option of using plasma. And that's actually being offered to almost every patient who gets admitted into the hospital. One of the things that determines convalescent plasma use is the availability of convalescent plasma. So that's why it's important for people to continue uh, to donate convalescent plasma that allows us to be able to offer it to those patients. We also are part of a Regeneron study for the inpatient management as well. So there is a therapeutic option where patients can decide to enroll into a Regeneron uh, trial. It's a, it's a double-blind placebo-controlled study. So the challenge with that is patients have about a 50-50 chance, really, of getting either placebo or the therapeutic drug. The challenge there is you cannot get convalescent plasma if you're going into that study. So because we have the convalescent plasma option, most patients are, when when they're given that opportunity to enroll, are actually opting to pursue convalescent plasma instead. A few of the COVID-19 vaccine trials were recently paused. This is such a complex and confusing topic, and the information around it seems to change frequently. Can you talk to us about the state of vaccines? Yeah, so there are at least five different vaccines in the final stages uh, of trials right now. Um, and they're, they're all very good candidates in that they're developing immunity. What we don't know is yet all of the data on safety because it can take a while. And we don't know the duration of that immunity. Because we don't know the duration, excuse me, of that immunity, we also do not know how protective it is in the COVID environment. Because typically when we, when we test vaccines, there are years in development so that we can see how that vaccine performs in people who are going out about as the disease is circulating. It's hard to be able to expose somebody to the virus. Now, if you look at some of the studies going on in Europe, what they're doing is they are going to willfully expose patients to COVID in, vir in various different environments in a controlled manner. Um, I don't believe that that's something we're pursuing in the US, but the data from that may help understand just how protective it is. The challenge is you can't compare it to placebo because it would be unethical to then expose patients without protection into that environment because of the potential harms. So that, that's why it becomes really challenging to control the, the groups with vaccine versus vaccine to exactly see how protective it is. But I think we can draw some conclusions based on that data when it becomes available. Um, the challenge is going to be getting people to take vaccines when they become approved. And that's because for vaccines that have been around for a long time already, our acceptance rate is not terribly high. I can only imagine how difficult it's going to be to get people to take a vaccine that's brand new, which is why transparency for this is going to be so important. As healthcare professionals, we are going to be tasked with giving good information and being able to recommend 
somebody to get a vaccine. In order for us to be able to do that, we have to have all the information available to be able to speak to the risk and the potential benefit of a vaccine. So that's why that transparency and that's why that scientific method and approval methods are so important because it gives us in the medical community much more comfort in being able to support its use. Anytime a vaccine gets stopped or a trial gets stopped, people get worried that it means something terrible. It is not. What happens during that trial is when somebody develops either an unexpected or a severe side effect that may or may not be related to the vaccine. So we have to realize there are a lot of things that happen in vaccines, side effect wise, that also happen in placebo. So it, it, it may just be coincidental. But to determine that, there is a safety board behind all of these investigations that is tasked with ensuring the safety for those enrolled in the study. So when they have several of, when they have any of these unexpected events or events that trigger um, an additional review, one of the steps that they can take for safety is they can pause the study. And the pausing usually entails not bringing in more new people. That's it is we don't want to enroll more people if there is indeed a problem with the vaccine because now we've just invited more people to be able to acquire the risk. In the majority of cases, they have actually been able to look at the case and then reopen the enrollment for, for the different vaccine trials. So that's not an unusual development, not just for vaccines, but for any therapeutic option. It's actually a very good safety mechanism. Now, if you do it too often, then it could be because there is a significant problem. And if they determine that there is indeed a serious problem, they can actually halt the study indefinitely, or they can stop the study. And that would be a, a very dramatic response, but not unprecedented. We've done that for other drugs before when we found out that drugs actually worsen outcomes or that the side effects make it so bad that there would be no benefit for most patients. Um, so that's something that I think um, is built into how we do studies and is a safety mechanism rather than a knock on any of those candidates right now. Dr. Cologne, what's one last thing you'd like to leave our listeners with? Well, the two things. One is get your flu shot. Uh, if you haven't already, this is a time to get your flu shot. We have to make sure that we all strive to get a record low flu season this year. And one of the most important steps is getting vaccinated. And lastly, thank your healthcare professionals, your physicians, your nurses, respiratory techs, anybody that works in a healthcare environment. They have really been putting in long hours. They have been risking their lives and they continue to do it day in and day out. Thank you so much, Dr. Cologne. Thank you. It is my pleasure as always. So while it's good to keep up with current news about COVID-19 and stay in the loop, remember to get the full story. If you have questions, ask your regular doctor at your next checkup or go to reliable sources to get information. Because as we learned as kids, the last person to share in a game of telephone may not have all the details to give you a proper report. You can get more information 24-7 at premierhealth.com slash COVID-19. This has been Premier Health Now On Air, COVID-19 edition. 
a Premier Health podcast. Our care lives here.